0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, looking at the politics of technology from around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. In our first discussion of 2022, we're joined by Federal Labor Front Venture Tim Watts to discuss the online safety inquiry that's been held over the summer. But first, our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Wow, it only feels like a decade ago that we were talking, guys. Um, Lizzie, how are you going and what's your summer been like?
1: Really good, didn't catch COVID, so consider that a win, um, unlike many people I know. But yeah, it's been a very busy January for Digital Rights Watch. We've filed, I think, three submissions already. And there's a couple more in the works in the next week, I think. So it's a tradition, I think, that over summer um the federal government gets busy trying to legislate, and more so during an election year, it seems, on tech policy issues. So we've had to rise to that occasion. I'm very grateful for all the staff at Digital Rights Watch. Pulling their weight. So, yeah, busy time. Yeah. And and speaking of um,
0: dodging the Rona, I do have to publicly thank you for stepping in at our book launch in Melbourne. Just before Christmas, um, we launched in Sydney, the public square project, had a big Chinese meal. What could go wrong? Went down to Melbourne to launch in, in Trades Hall. And an hour before the launch, I got the call that someone at the lunch had the virus. And I had to go back to the hotel and isolate and wait for my test. And Lizzie, took it up even though she probably disagreed with half of what was in the book but but ran the event brilliantly and allowed me to launch the book over mobile phone which is I hope the only time I need to do that but um it was quite awkward but I you also did it with um panache and aplomb so thank you my best my
1: best impression of you Peter obviously
0: (laughs) that could not be a pretty thing um and Dan you're behind the firewall um over in Perth how's your summer been uh yeah coronavirus
2: free pretty much like like most west australians and um uh no end in sight for uh for when the border's going to come down so um it's going to be an interesting year uh, but no, it was a good summer i'm still coming to terms with it with it being over i think although i've got to say um it's been a really really busy period for the guardian we've had massive audiences as you would expect off the back of this omicron wave um, and lots of lots of interest in in our journalism so um uh that part of at least has, has been uh, has been pleasing
0: great today um those that are new to burning platforms you spend the first half of the show doing a survey of um the news around politics and tech and then we dive deep in the second half which is when we'll get to tim although tim you'll be welcome to jump in with your your wit and wisdom on any of the topics we go through before then normally we sort of I, i thought we'd be doing a here's everything that happened over summer but all the um action lizzie seems to have been happening in the last 24 hours with the um, I wouldn't call it a collapse in the value of Facebook, or maybe I would, is it? The Facebook parent fell 26% Thursday on the back of poor earnings, fewer users, um, only a, a couple of hours after Tim Watts was grilling um, Francis Haugen. So all these things, all these things matter. So how do we think about this? Is this like, you know, there was, these companies go in peaks and troughs, but how significant is this drop off as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, I mean, it is the biggest wipeout of market value in a US company in history. So 26% share price drop is pretty incredible in one day. Um, there are a few things to say about it. I, I, the first thing I think that's interesting is it dragged down other tech stocks. So things like um, TikTok and uh, Twitter and a few others that were, um, that you know, peers that tech stocks do feel these things uh, between them, but it is a catastrophic drop. I think if you were looking at any other company, you'd be really, really worried. Um, And I think there's a few things to say about it. Facebook has prioritized its future on growth, constantly acquiring new people. Uh, onto its platform, particularly outside of places where I think it probably considers the market already somewhat saturated, like the United States or Europe. So particular focus on places like Africa and Latin America, as well as other parts of the world. But that doesn't seem to be working. And the question is if, growth of users is your only metric for value because you're reaching more people and you're able to give them more specific advertising, then what is your value add if that starts to denigrate? And in fact, you start to lose the user base of people who want to engage in your platform. I think there's probably lots of different reasons why... that user base has slowed. I mean, I should say the numbers are still pretty big. So, uh, you know, there were nearly 2 billion users um, as of the last quarter. There's still nearly 2 billion users. So it's not growing, but it's still an extremely large platform. It's still very, very profitable as a company uh, and that hasn't changed. So it's more, I think, about what this is about the future of the company rather than where it is presently. I mean, it still gets 97% of its revenue from advertising. So it's highly dependent on being able to collect. collect very specific data to create curated audiences for advertisers faces a couple of different headwinds in that respect. Apple's cracked down on privacy and refuses to share all the data that it gets through its devices about users. That's a problem for Facebook. And also, people don't want to use the platform. People are flocking to places like TikTok and other places that feel less boomerish, should I say, feel a little less outdated, also feel a little less predatory, probably in a bunch of different ways, given the coverage of Facebook. And then there's this issue, which I think is close to your heart, Pete, which is what is the impact of the metaverse? They announced this, you know, grand scheme for creating a metaverse. They were going to lead on it. They're subsidizing the hardware to get people onto it. It's definitely going to something they see as part of their future. But a lot of people look at those videos and just think they don't want to go there. It looks like a really bad version of The Sims. Um, mm. And there's a real question as to why after spending two years having Zoom meetings, you'd want to continue to now have the rest of your social life in a rather depressing looking online space. And so I think there is a real question as to whether that investment will yield uh, the results they need to continue to be profitable. So that's the other component. Uh, is that spend on the metaverse a good one? And I think the jury's a bit out on that.
0: Now, Dan, you've worked in um, big business. What would be going on inside um, the Facebook mothership? Is this um, the sort of thing that leads to big changes of strategy or do you think um, it's it's part of what happens when a big company pivots into a different a different area?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, well, the amount of times that i thought Facebook would pivot in terms of what they're doing based on, you know, a, a certain amount of media coverage and then they haven't has... has um, uh, never ceases to surprise me but maybe maybe the valuation of the company dropping by a quarter would, would be enough to, to focus mark zuckerberg's mind. I d- I don't know. But look I think there's two there's two contributors downside. I mean and, and Lizzie's touched on both of them but I just want to bring in a couple of points if I could. Uh, so one is obviously uh, as Lizzie mentioned there's there's more competition and so that's that's affecting their user growth. You know TikTok is the main one. It's not just TikTok by the way I mean Snapchat is still uh, a, a competitor which is growing. Um, but I don't want to overstate this because Ultimately, while there is some more competition for attention their lock on the advertising market is still absolutely massive so they still take 25% of the advertising market in Australia, I think it's about the same in the US, uh, and with Google taking 50% and 25% left left over for the rest of us, um, and I think so they still got you know very substantial market power. Um, the other, the big contributor though, which is giving me, I guess, a little bit of hope about this, is that one of the main reasons for the drop was what Lizzie touched on, and that is that the their ability, their business model is built on their ability to follow consumers around the internet and around their mobile phones. And when Apple rolled out their privacy changes last year, that became substantially more difficult. And I'm hopeful that this is the start of, uh, you know, that, that that's happened on on iOS. We, you know, cookies have gone away on on most browsers and are disappearing from Chrome soon. Although that's probably to Google's advantage, but that's a, that's another talk show. Um, but then, you know, we're also seeing regulation catch up, including in Australia. So we're going to see, I think, well, I'm hopeful of seeing once there is a, a proper review of the the Privacy Act in Australia, we're going to see. Uh, some 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 guardrails put on the ability to follow people around the internet, and I think that will also have an impact on uh, their business model, uh, Facebook and Google as well. So I mean, maybe this is just a reset that is reflecting that new reality that if you go into surveillance uh, surveil your users um you're 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 going to be in trouble going forward and maybe this is a more reflection of what their 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 company valuation should be if if that is no longer possible or at least if that is more difficult
0: and if this wasn't enough twiggy forest has launched criminal proceedings as a citizen in the um wa magistrates court um in what could only be described as a a stretch of legal interpretation, but good luck to him anyway. But this is all over um, the ongoing scam adver- advertisements that puts Twiggy up there with Walid Ali, and I think Koshi's in there somewhere as well to promote cryptocurrency. And Forrest has not been able to get Facebook to move on this, and now he's um, convinced the Attorney General to allow him to launch a, a criminal prosecution as a citizen for breaching. I think it's a conspiracy around money laundering, actually. So it's it it's a wild legal strategy. But I wonder, um, Lizzie, as the um, the lawyer in the house, um, what you think about this little play?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because Twiggy has has had a bit of a vendetta against Facebook for a long time now. I mean, I'm. He's also intervening into the space in other ways as well. Like he's funding um, people from civil society and academia to examine some of the issues around power in um, online spaces. So uh, he's got a longer term interest. the vendetta
0: drove the philanthropy, actually. That's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, what I would prefer to see is what, you know, what Dan was talking about. Like if you're interested in uh, kind of attacking the business model of these companies, I do think you need to think about re- high quality regulation that looks at allowing people to have rights, not just pursuing your own vendetta through the courts. So, I mean, I must say like, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Twiggy Forest, I think often for very good reasons. And um, I think it's an example of somebody using their immense resources to try and go after a company that uh, maybe gives the impression of doing something. But I think there's probably other ways in which um, this could be done or, or or facebook could be held to account and that's what i'd, I'd probably prefer to see in the space I'm trying to be as Jimmy, dramatic you, as possible Jimmy, have you got a
0: take on facebook
3: some um, current woes look i'm not a business analyst peter so I'll, N- I'll nor leave, are I'll we the, the, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this i'll leave the, the financial <laughs> advice to others i, I have to say I, it did raise my eyebrows to see that the, the quantum of the investment in in the metaverse play um you know 10 billions big by anyone's measure um, I was saying in the chat just now that um, I did pick up an Oculus for purely for research purposes because I figured if, if, if Facebook is making a play in this, it's probably incumbent on policymakers to have some understanding of it. I, I have to say, though, it's not the metaverse that I was promised in books like Snow Crash and things like that, you know. so What's going on once you
0: put your Oculus on? What's, what's happening?
3: I feel a bit sick, to be honest, when I put it on. There's only so long that I can keep it on the head before I start feeling a little bit unwell maybe you get used to that I'm not not sure but look there was nothing that sort of blew my socks off that that made me want to keep coming back to it um you know it's funny like I I think about you know those first experiences uh with technologies and I can remember as a as a well like primary school kid you know my first experience with bulletin boards um you know when that was first available um this is incredible you know I want to be on it 24 hours a day and you know that kind of adrenaline rush of addiction and I I, look I certainly haven't got that in the VR space
2: let's remember why Facebook have gone into the so-called metaverse though just just quickly and and Mark Zuckerberg has said this publicly this is not speculation he hates the fact that he does not have control of the platforms namely iOS and Google Android which his business is built on and he views Oculus uh, and whatever else is going to come whatever other hardware is going to come as his his chance, if you like, of controlling an underlying platform for computing power in the future. That is the underlying motivation. He hates the fact that what Apple can do, what they have just done to his share price and can basically change the rules and make it much more difficult for him to surveil his users. And therefore his advertising business is is severely compromised. That's why he's going into the metaverse, just to remember, just to remind everyone, it's not for some utopian view of the future. It's so he can have more control Uh, and and make his business more powerful.
1: It does sort of make me think that the acquisition of Oculus by Facebook a little little while ago now, a few years ago, is this kind of thing that we've seen play out in lots of other instances where they're creating essentially a vertical monopoly. So they own not just the, you know, software that you might use to engage with the metaverse, but also the hardware that you you use, which allows them to then, um, you know, subsidise the uh, widespread uptake of that hardware. I mean, I, I don't know whether this strategy will work, but I think that's the thinking. From a competition law perspective, that's the kind of acquisition of a company that ought to be stopped. You know, we we're now talking a lot about um, regulating big tech. Obviously, the United States this is a massive issue over the last twelve months, two years, and there's a lot of talk about you know the requirement or the considering that um, that Facebook should have to divest from Instagram because it's it's a monopolistic um, move to have acquired that company because they offer a similar service. Well, I don't know why aren't we stopping these things before they happen if we know what Facebook is going to do with Oculus, which is to try and build. Uh, build out a, a vertical monopoly so they can avoid competition from companies like Apple restricting how they can continue to supply advertising this is the time to start talking about it not when they've subsidized potentially lots and lots of people to get onto this metaverse and and have to throw their lot in with them being the default provider of that infrastructure and that's what I was sort of would like to see now in competition law, mm. a bit more forward thinking <laughs> anyway
0: we're going to go back I think probably to some of these issues around regulation with Tim and the um in the in the deep dive, but before we get there, I did want to just mark a couple of other stories that are doing the rounds. The first is the um, Joe Rogan or um, Rogan Josh, as my wife calls him, um, and the a, a bunch of musicians that um, are pulling their content off Spotify because of the um, content of a podcast that Spotify doesn't just carry but pays a hundred million dollars to. Um, this um, podcaster to to put. So this is a bit of premium content from Spotify. And I guess I'm interested in everyone's take on this because I've got these conflicting thoughts. The first is I have a sense that people pushing back on Spotify for content, it's not like a platform being responsible for content that's just been placed in that. It feels more like a publisher who's paid a lot of money. And so there's a responsibility there. But on the other side of it, I've kind of listened to the pod and I've read a lot about various interpretations and it seems with everything else going on and the debates that particularly going on in the States, it seems like a really real, weird hill to die on for a bunch of musos who peaked in the late sixties in Laurel Canyon. It almost feels like there's, there's a Venn diagram. There's people that know who Neil Young is and people who know who Joe Rogan is and very little in the middle. Um, but I, I don't know I don't I don't quite know what to make of this my i I feel that Spotify should be and, and any platform should be accountable for what they publish, but I also am not sure if this is the the moment to be having a max, mass exodus, particularly when there's been so many other reasons for artists to get off Spotify, including the fact that they're basically giving their music away for nothing. I don't know who wants to weigh in first, Lizzie. I have lots yeah. to say
2: on this, if, if that's right, if I can go first. I, I mean, I think all power to them to be honest. I'm in that Venn diagram in that little little sliver in the center there, by the so, way. Yeah. I, I love I love <laughs> Neil Young and, and uh, I'm aware of Joe Rogan. I said he wouldn't count myself as a fan. Um this is this is this is fascinating, right? Like I, I, I want to caveat everything I'm about to say with with just a couple of disclaimers, if I could. Um, I think Spotify is a great company. Uh, I think I know I have many, many people that work there. I think their culture is really good. I think Daniel Leck, their founder, is actually someone who genuinely gives a shit. And so, excuse my language on the on the podcast. But uh, I think they've just got it wrong on this issue. And this this was it was so obvious that this issue was coming as soon as they announced that they had signed Joe Rogan exclusively to their platform because they paid a, what was reported to be a hundred million dollar fee to have Joe Rogan's content exclusively. And at that moment, they cease being the neutral platform that all of these tech platforms say they are and they became a publisher. And you no longer get to claim the benefits of being a neutral platform. You know, we're just, we're providing a, a platform for people to say whatever the hell they want, free speech and all of that, and yet pay $100 million to someone like Joe Rogan to spout misinformation. You are directly, directly responsible for it. And so, look, I think whether it will have an impact, I guess, Peter, I take your point. Neil Young um, and the like that have, that have pulled their content off probably or their music off pro- probably not much uh, and they'll probably be back on at some point in the future too I would say, but I think it did at least make Spotify take notice, they, they have at least put some disclaimers on uh, controversial topics like this, now they've sided with Joe Rogan on this but I reckon this is going to come up again. I reckon this is going to come up again for them. And I wouldn't be surprised, given what I know about the company, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, Joe Rogan comes off that platform because it's no longer tenable for them to be paying such a huge amount of money to effectively publish that content exclusively, right? They are absolutely a publisher here. So we'll see. We'll see whether I'm right. But, um, you know, I, I guess it's... Um, it's just another example, and we've seen this with Facebook as well, uh, of, of platforms wanting all of the benefits of the tech and the neutral platform and other people's content, and none of the responsibility that comes with the curation of that content, or in Spotify's case, uh, the exclusive uh, payment for that content. So uh, I think they're in trouble. What about you, Lizzie? Would you boot Thanks. in?
1: I think this is so interesting, Dan, because I am—I have real a lot of criticisms of Spotify as a company, and I think it's really interesting that you love it. <laughs> and I think well, I've got a guest plan for later in the year of someone who's analyzed these platforms, particularly for the rights of people who produce creative content and whether they work for them. Um, and uh, not, not like the first crit- time we've
2: disagreed, uh, I think, Lizzie. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, I've done to... it
1: politely. Anyway, <laughs> the point I was going to make was yeah, I think it's interesting. I wonder whether you'd apply the same rule to Substack, then, who also does a similar thing but offers it as an advance. So he pays it as an advance to people to come onto the platform and exclusively offer um, their content through there. And there's a number of high profile journalists who've done that. And whether that would be considered a, a similar problem, you know, because you're essentially subsidizing content. So you are m- more responsible for it. I mean, I think you do. And, and there's other ways in which I think they're more like a publisher because they elevate certain kind of content as well they don't just give money they actually curate what you end up seeing so it's a it's um there's other more sophisticated ways in which i think you could classify them as a publisher as well i mean i don't have a particular problem with what's happened like nobody is calling for joe rogan to be deplatformed as far as i can i mean people are i'm sure but in terms of this particular initiative i don't think they were People are uh, who are who are um, removing themselves from Spotify. So it's just like saying to the world that um, they don't want to be associated with this. And fair play to them. I don't know what else you are to do in these contexts. Like deplatforming people, I think is something we have to talk about a bit more because it does actually work. I think in terms of silencing voices. This is something that I think is an uncomfortable reality for lots of people on different parts of the political spectrum. Because you know, on one read, it's a good thing that Donald platform Donald Trump was deplatformed from Donald Facebook.
0: Platform. (laughs) Um,
1: But also, like, think about Craig Kelly and stuff. I do think it's diminished Craig Kelly by being kicked off Facebook.
0: But is this more Craig Kelly or more Alan Jones and Sky and advertisers, which affected, like, other people that are supporting the business model saying we don't want to be supporting that business model anymore?
1: Well, I think this is a good question. Like, what do? You, how do you, in in a principled way, respond to the call for somebody to be deplatformed? Because there's a, um, or to have to look elsewhere, to have to perhaps go to Sky News and be, that be their platform mm. instead of something much more mainstream, which is then uh, makes it seem more palatable than perhaps it ought to be considered because it gets you know Joe Rogan's dis- disinformation misinformation gets put up there with lots of other stuff that's very legitimate and it's seen as acceptable um is it okay for Craig Kelly to be treated the same as all other kind of politicians when he's clearly causing harm to people and contributing to the fragmentation of our democracy mm. i think you know there's um some utility in thinking about how deplatforming doesn't necessarily silence someone but it does have an impact on their capacity to reach people and our understanding of what the Overton window is what's acceptable kind of um discourse and what isn't and you know to some degree there's a lot of argument people will argue about this in relation to authoritarianism that you've got to nip this stuff in the bud early because otherwise it gains traction and I think there's utility to that argument but I also understand why people are concerned about it from a free speech perspective because mm. you make this rule for Joe Rogan or you know Craig Kelly the question is who's next is there going to be somebody else who's a who's um from progressive side of politics that gets booted off Facebook for for some spurious reason. And so I, I understand the tension. I just don't think there's anybody who's really got a clear position on this, to be Maybe, honest. I, but I have the answer. Maybe people...
0: Tim Watts has a clear oh. position. Are you Joe Raven or too. Neil Young?
3: <laughs> I, I I think I have had uh, Neil Young songs on playlists on Spotify in the past, so, and if I'm directly impacted by this. Look, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm sort of persuaded by the Evelyn Dweck view of the world that kind of every platform will ultimately confront a moderation crisis. Like you know, it is inevitable. Now I saw one the other day where OpenSea had a an NFT of the Christchurch terrorist, you know, like as though like he was some kind of a Catholic icon. Um, so, you know, every platform is going to confront these moderation issues. The the reality is you've got to think ahead. You've got to think through your values and think, well, how do I want this platform operating? The, the days when you can literally just say, hey, we're just a, a unthinking conduit to the world are gone. Like no one cops that anymore. Advertisers don't cop it anymore. Regulators don't cop it anymore. The public doesn't cop it anymore. You know, that's not to say that, you know, deplatforming is the right solution in all in all forms. So I think Lizzie's right. It, it's definitely effective. Um, and some of the bigger voices we, see, we saw uh, promoting white nationalism in the US um, a few years ago are now, you know, trying to make a buck flogging all kinds of weird things and weird parts of the internet. Like they are not part of the co- public consciousness anymore. Um, so when I talk about these moderation um, crises, I sort of say we all play a role. On these platforms you know it, it's not a purely centralized model anymore so i think neil young johnny mitchell i take my hat off to them they're playing their role as citizens in this debate i saw wendy zuckerberg the host of science versus another spotify podcast that, that is paid um, you know they've taken protest action they've said that they'll only produce science podcasts as debunking misinformation um, promoted on spotify and that's you know entirely admirable as well i think so that's that's a really important part of this. We all play a role um, in the information ecosystem that we live in these days.
0: I just want to point. Dylan's made a great point in the chat. Um, people always say misinformation must be banned, but no one actually has the guts to define misinformation because it's an absolute minefield and impossible to define. And that's the other problem. It's it's relative both sides, although there are points lines that are crossed. I guess. Um. Mm.
1: Wow. I mean, is there because, I don't know. I mean, I like I take Kat's point in the chat as well that um, it might not just be about de-platforming, it might be about amplification, which is sort of what you were saying, Tim, essentially, mm-hmm. how do you curate what content gets put to the top? So, obviously, what we know from the Facebook papers for Facebook, at least, is that outrage, obviously, is prioritised. You know, they've got a whole scheme for rating posts that means that someone like Craig Kelly is perfectly purpose-built for Facebook. Um, So I think there's work we can do to regulate um, moderation in that way, or, you know, we can create a duty of care, you can talk about harm that's caused, um, as well as like, you know, this bigger political questions. I do think it is really difficult, and it's quite, um, it's quite culturally specific often as well, and part of the problem is there's big tech giants come from the US and then apply a liberal hand everywhere around the world, particularly favouring freedom of speech above other um, values or or rights or concepts that might be more um, important in other parts of the world, which is part of the problem. But I do think content moderation is this really difficult question. Like we need more people who are involved in doing it. It's about, I think, involving (laughs) grassroots people in um, content moderation rather than just assuming we can set rules from above or have a small number of people who do it or outsource it to a very large number of people and pay them nothing to do it which is the other kind of unspoken aspect of content moderation or assume Um, an algorithm can do it exactly and so that kind of um, citizen engagement is probably what would improve facebook but that's a much bigger question of how you um, improve everyone's engagement with democracy i suppose and and community building Uh, but i don't think there is an easy short-term answer And to my mind, this particular example of saying, oh, we don't necessarily want Joe Rogan kicked off, but we're not going to participate in this platform. That seems like a perfectly legitimate thing to my mind to do. And I'm surprised, Pete, you don't agree. But anyway.
0: I'll make one more. Yeah, you said you had the answer, so let's hear it. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah,
2: I am. Yeah, th- <laughs> yeah, that might have been a little bit grandiose uh, in hindsight. But look, I think that the, the one point I make, the other potential solution to this is is it's kind of an obvious one that I, I always bang on about. But I, I think competition. I mean, this picks up on Dylan's point as well, in that defining misinformation, disinformation is not is subjective. Uh, so, but the point is, is that these platforms are publishers, or at least are carrying out a function that is publishers. So they're going to make decisions about Joe Rogan or not, which everyone on this call may agree with or or disagree with. But the point is, it's a subjective decision they're going to have to make. What would be really helpful is if there was more than just Spotify and Apple, where you could listen to your music so that there were more choices. And obviously, I'm, I'm looking at this through a news lens, because that's my background. But you know, there's lots of publishers and we make subjective decisions around what to publish and what not to publish. This is, I guess, a, a bigger version of that with potentially bigger consequences given the size of their audience. But there just there needs to be more competition. Once a company gets to the size of even Spotify, it's pretty concerning, actually, how much influence they have. And that's obviously a thing we've touched on many times in, in this forum.
0: Now, I am keen to dig in, to, to dive in with Tim. You were going to quickly give a hot take on AFL and crypto. Do you want to give us a short version of that? I, we we need to do a whole show on crypto just to work out if it is just a game or something real. But what's yeah, your take? Then
2: I this? think it would be you, me, and, and my mum, actually, would be the only ones I think we'd lose Lizzie. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Tim would join us. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Um, so look, really quickly then, just racing through this so that we can get to uh, get to Tim. So uh, yeah, look, for background, I think most people would probably know this, but um, last month the AFL announced a new five-year uh, deal with Crypto.com. Uh, they're a trading platform that allows uh, consumers to trade cryptocurrencies and they've got uh, exclusivity on the so-called, uh, to become the official cryptocurrency exchange of the AFL, whatever that means. Maybe
0: putting so... cards on NFT or <laughs> doing the draft with um, crypto, I don't know.
2: Well, it, I, I think it's more narrow than that, actually. I think, I mean, crypto.com is effectively just a platform for buying and selling cryptocurrencies. And, and by the way, just in case anyone hasn't seen this, you probably have seen the ads featuring Matt Damon on, on YouTube and on free-to-air TV as well. So, And they've got this catch line of fortune favours the brave. Um, now, I think that a more, more appropriate catch line would be something like bankruptcy follows the ignorant because, and I appreciate that doesn't have the same ring to it, but that is effectively the concern here. Now, again, first a disclaimer. Look, I'm a believer in Web three, much to Lizzie's disgust, uh, and uh, I do think that blockchain technology uh, has has substantial potential, and I do invest in cryptocurrencies. But here's the thing: I've spent 20 years working in and around technology. I've also spent countless hours researching blockchain tech, and you know, I've read the Bitcoin white paper and, or at least parts of it, and partially understood at least a quarter of it. Um, you know, I, I have a background in this, and yet I still will only invest enough that I am prepared to lose. And the problem is, is that these platforms are effectively entirely speculative. So you're going to have a whole bunch of of consumers coming to use this platform who will come across it because of its association with the AFL. They will treat it like a financial uh, trading platform uh, without any of the protections that that are in place. So once again, this is an example of of the tech racing ahead of the regulation. You're gonna have people coming in and buying and selling crypto assets, which are purely speculative, there's no sophisticated investor threshold that is required to take part in this there's no government oversight over it uh and so i'm my concern is that we're we're basically going to have a whole bunch of people which are going to lose a stack of money on what they think, think is going to be a normal investment but which, which is in fact very very high risk and the afl should know better i think I, I mean if i was the afl um i love the afl but if i was the afl i would have i would not have taken this because it it looks to me like it's a it's a wagering partnership, but worse. It's a wagering partnership without any of the guardrails that come with uh, wagering companies and regulation.
1: Wagering mm-hmm. companies being some of their other big sponsors. I'll just point out e- exactly,
2: yeah. by the way. But but at least there are some reg. There is some regulation in that. Like I Not mean, telling I'm people to gamble
0: too. responsibly. Yeah. Um, Lizzie, <laughs> in, in in your capacity as um uh, an anti gambling advocate, I'm interested mm. in your take on this one.
1: Yeah, I think that is. Pretty worrying. I think normalising these kinds of um, investments, when people may assume that it's similar to investing in shares or, oh, God forbid, like bonds, uh, I think is a bit of a problem. I, I think it is irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, like I said. Kind of blithely, there. The AFL's had a long history of uh, associations with gambling, you know, not just at the AFL level, but also at a local level. Um, You know, lots and lots of clubs make a huge amount of money from um, poker machines in their club rooms. It is changing, but, um, and there's a culture of that changing, which is great. But I um, I wasn't thrilled to see this. I have to say. I I, I am a bit worried that people aren't um, are investing money that they can't lose in crypto, which is I think the only money you ought to be investing in crypto. Mm-hmm. And we're we're going to have to have some hard conversations about this over the next few years because there's going to be a lot of stories of misery where that's taken place. Yeah, it is a
0: psychological difference between even gambling on a result and gambling on money or something that looks or feels like money. I think there, it hasn't been thought through. Anyway, let's dig, let's dig into this inquiry. Um welcome Tim. Thanks for um from Wayne Tim Tim is Labor's shadow assistant minister for Comms and also cybersecurity. Um but he's also spent the summer while we were taking it easy um in the role of deputy chair of the social media and online harms inquiry that's been running through the parliament. And I've got to say I was very skeptical about this inquiry when it was announced as many of us were. I I suspect that in a world in which freedom reigned over summer, this would have had a lot more attention and it would have been rolling out a series of moral panics of which the federal governments get tough on trolls laws would have been one of their talking points that led lead up to the election, but because the, the virus reigned I, I thought it was actually quite interesting um, that it seemed to be a, a more interesting and substantive inquiry, largely thanks to Tim's role as Deputy Chair, where he really had a bit of, I, I suspect it was fun, but we'll, we'll call it probing questions with some of the, the larger platforms and also some of the, um, the giddy goats that turned up to, to give evidence. So, Tim, welcome. And I, I just—I guess we'll just kick this around, but what's it been? What, what's been your take out from this inquiry um, and what have we learnt, if anything?
3: Thanks lot, Peter. And before we sort of kick off the formal part of my podcast, I should say that um, I'm joining you from the lands of the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, really important part of our history in, in Melbourne's West that we always put front and centre here. Look, it's fair to say that um, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have spent my summer period in a parliamentary inquiry with Craig Kelly. Um, so this is not a process that I initiated. <laughs> um, but I think at a big picture level, it is fair to say that the existence of inquiries like this is symptomatic of the fact that, you know, policymakers and the public more broadly have sort of had it with the social media platforms and, and across a whole range of, of issues, you know. Um, the, the, the the breadth of the harms that people came to speak, speak about in this inquiry was was quite extraordinary. And certainly, I'm not an expert on all these kinds of harms. You know, we had uh, representatives of uh, groups dealing with uh, eating disorders um, we had representatives of uh, groups dealing with um, you know religious groups that were subject to hate speech and frankly radicalization to, to violence um, we had uh, advocates um, for you know women's participation in the public sphere who were saying that you know our free speech rights are being violated because you know we can't participate in a public debate because when we engage on these social media platforms um, there is just a torrent of abuse so you know just stepping back at a big picture i think it is worth acknowledging that there is a substantive issue here um but i think there's there's a bipartisan recognition of that you know sort of something needs to be done in inverted commerce um look this inquiry there are some shortcomings about this inquiry as a vehicle for doing it not the least of which is that This is an inquiry that was established to look into online harms that is being asked to report two weeks after the government's flagship Online Safety Act, um, which was the big reform uh, initiative of last year, comes into effect. So it makes it very difficult to evaluate the effectiveness of the, the last very substantial piece of regulatory intervention from the government in this space of online harms when it's only been operative for two weeks. So big picture, it's a real issue. But for me, the story of the last three years is the lack of coordination in the way that the government's gone about trying to deal with these issues. You know, Google pointed out that there are currently nine uh, consultative processes, regulatory reform processes in this space underway at the moment. Facebook pointed out that there have been 18 over the last three years. Um, But I don't get any sense of what the big picture of the way that the government thinks about these issues is, like what it's prioritised in this space, what it's really trying to achieve. You know, there's certainly been no um, effort to sequence these reforms in any way that seems to make comprehensible sense. Um, It really has been sort of an announcement driven approach to policymaking that has left us with a bit of a dog's breakfast, to be honest.
0: Um, Sitting there, and I know you don't have primary portfolio responsibility if there is a change of government and no one counts their chickens before they're hatched. But what do you what what do you sense Labor's approach to these issues will be? If you say that the the current government they've done a few things, it's been very announcement driven and, and quite I, I reckon capital P political. Like, is there another way of approaching this?
3: Yeah, I mean, in, in one way you could say that the, this the, this government has sort of tried to address a series of specific harms in a narrow sense. So we've had reforms like. The abhorrent, violent material legislation that dealt with largely um, the dissemination of you know, appalling crimes online. Like, frankly, it was introduced in response to the live streaming of the Christchurch atrocity. Um, we've had the Online Safety Act that's trying to sort of bring together the disparate um, uh, legislative frameworks for, um, you know, the former child bullying provisions um, for. The, you know, the restricted access scheme, um, the, the adult cyber abuse scheme. So these kind of specific harms are all sort of being brought together. Um, you know, we saw that the news media bargaining code, you know, we've seen all these sort of individual regulatory interventions. Um, you know, what we haven't really seen is a, a systemic approach. And really the, the, the issues flowing from these digital platforms, they're complex. But they're systemic. You know, there are root causes to them. I, I think. Um, so, if we're serious about tackling these issues, I think we need to sort of not lose the forest for the trees, um, and, and have a, a, an approach that is bigger picture, systemic. It's able to respond to the dynamic change in the sector, but you know, is focused on that that big picture.
0: I guess the other point um, is that nearly every portfolio has a touch point. Um, Is there a world in which you have an integrated, I don't know if you have a ministry for dealing with big tech, but how do you actually structure government that um, there's a little bit more coordination there?
3: Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I've worked in technology in one way or another for my entire career. And when I first started practising in competition law and telecommunications, like comms was the regulation of telecommunications and broadcasting. You know, it was pretty... You know, you could define the vertical, so to speak. Um, but by the time of, say, the the election of the Rudd government, you know, the, the comms ministry all of a sudden was the Ministry for Communications but also broadband and the digital economy, so it kind of expanded. Under the current government, the comms portfolio sort of imploded altogether um, and has sort of been bundled in under the infrastructure department. So you can kind of see how, the, the, you know, the boundaries here um, have become diffuse and and. It's sort of both everywhere and nowhere in government at the moment. Um, Which actually so, speaks but,
0: to a lack of imagination of what it is. what is the problem you're trying to solve.
3: Well, it's, so I, you go, I think you it, it's a lack of joined-upness about what the big picture is, right? I mean, a lot of the questions that I've been asking through this inquiry are, you know, what are the mechanisms for all of the different regulators and policymakers in this uh, space to talk to each other, you know, because at the moment, like just one example, there are currently underway... Five parallel schemes for age verification. Like in parallel, we're looking. There are five separate schemes introducing age verification um, regulatory regimes. And you know, I don't have much sympathy for the for, for the platforms as a general point. But you know, complying with five different parallel schemes is going to be hard. There's going to be inconsistencies but between them. Um, it, you know, it's sort of no way to run a railway. So I, I think we need to be That needs to be a priority, looking at these coordination mechanisms. And that's part of, I say, step back to the big picture, prioritising a systemic approach. um, And from that, the coordination will flow, I think.
1: Um, I was pretty sceptical when this was announced because to my mind, what seems to be going on in this space is the government wants to look like it's taking action this seems like a really convenient way for them to do that because they can give big tech a kick, which is a very um, uh, useful thing to be able to do politically. Everyone's on board with giving tech platforms a kick. And they can talk about the devastating harm caused to people online uh, and how that needs to be fixed. And they can look like they're doing something. You know, they can talk about the Online Safety Act. They can talk about this, you know, supposedly anti-trolling bill, which is, you know, got its own terrible problems. Um, And so I feel like this is going to be a perennial experience we have, particularly with conservative politics politicians um putting forward these kinds of um you know proposals or inquiries where not much is done uh but it looks like something is being done and distracts from other things like that they haven't actioned like a um, anti-corruption body or similar I, I don't think that's actually that cynical but maybe i'm wrong and you might have a different view but one of the things i wanted to raise was just who who was heard from in the course of this inquiry because it gives you an insight in the, i think into who they think is being harmed and what kinds of harms are important and what kind of harms are not important and you know we were pretty frustrated digital rights watch we put in a submission weren't invited that's fine I mean it's not about us personally but it wasn't as though we were overwhelmed with lots of people from organizations other than you know kind of religious organizations Um, uh, there was a CEO of an app that went and appeared um, the app's called Giggle and what they do is they create a space for women only but the CEO is known for um, making anti-trans comments, but they're using technology that only allows women to access their um, place online and um, or their platform, and that I think is particularly problematic. I'm not sure how you create um, verification of gender that's automated, and uh, I think there's a real nasty vibe to this, where a lot of the harm that's experienced by women is kind of weaponized for a conservative force um, or conservative politicians without necessarily talking about the harms that are experienced by LGBTQIQ youth particularly, but also those communities generally, Um, people who work in more marginalized communities that are often feeling the brunt of online safety legislation, like um, the adult industry and sex workers who work online, those kinds of harms are just kind of ignored. And that's one of the things I wanted to kind of start this conversation with one of the things we can learn from that inquiry to my mind is what kinds of harms the government is interested in addressing and what they're prepared to ignore and that's what I think we can learn from it because that kind of sets their agenda for how they treat this this issue and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that.
3: Yeah I mean I, it, it's it's slightly a difficult position for me given that there are two two Labor members on this committee we we, we, we didn't have the numbers uh so to speak uh, Craig Kelly counted in our in our bucket, as an opposition member, in this inquiry, so um, you know you can weigh that up. I mean, I, look, you can absolutely see pro- people's priorities from their actions. Like that, that's not controversial. You can infer what people's priorities are from from their actions. I, I think a focus for me through this inquiry has been trying to broaden that lens, um, particularly in respect to societal harms, um, because there there have been a lot of sort of whack-a-mole regulatory actions in this space over the last three years, but you know, it's notable that the, the harms that haven't been tackled are harms like, you know, Australia is fairly unique in the fact that we don't deal with online hate speech. So that's speech targeting, uh, you know, group identities. Um, so, you know, it could be race, religion, uh, gender, sexuality, like you know, any of those sort of protected group identities. Um we have existing regimes that deal with particularised abuse, so abuse targeting individuals, but if it's targeting a group identity, there's not a regulatory regime dealing with that, and that's pretty problematic because there's plenty of of, of, uh, of research that shows that the kind of radicalisation that we see through things like you know, the Great Replacement Theory and through the, the, the right-wing extremist um, narratives is what has um, uh, radicalised people like the Christchurch terrorists to violence. One of the most, I think, impactful witnesses before the inquiry um, was Rita Jabri-Markwell from the Australian Muslim Advocacy Network who broke down in tears when we were asking her about what uh, legislative uh, processes have been taken in the wake of the Christchurch atrocity to prevent that kind of radicalisation happening again and an Australian murdering 50 people. I mean, she she really. I, mean, I think her language she used was quite telling. She said it felt lonely. You know, there was all this attention given to these other forms of online harms, but you know, when she is through her own voluntary efforts, spending half of her life trying to get the Facebook page of a former Australian senator um, taken down in the wake of an anti-discrimination commission finding in Queensland, um, and couldn't get that to happen on Facebook despite the the dehumanising, you know, Islamophobia that's just spewing out of it, um, I think there is a gap in in the regulatory regime there. I mean, broader societal harms, like, so in that context, impact on social cohesion, but more broadly, societal harms like impact on our democracy and, you know, trust in our democratic institutions, there's nothing um, to deal with that in our regulatory regime at the moment. So I I think you're right, uh, Lizzie, that it's been a narrow focus so far, these
2: harms. can I jump in with a, with a question on this? It strikes me that um, it's perhaps a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully you'll, you'll come with me. It, it, it strikes me that um, one of the issues with dealing with online harms is that it's quite hard to define exactly what they are. Uh, you know, there's obviously lots of anecdotal evidence about the different things, and you, you've touched on some of them, Lizzie's touched on some of them, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not diminishing those in any way, that they're, they're substantial and they're real issues. But it strikes me that a place to start needs to be some transparency from the platforms that are distributing this content to determine exactly how much content of this content is out there and how much of it is being amplified and consumed. Now, the the problem I think we've got, particularly with Facebook, is that, uh, but this applies to YouTube as well, is that so much of the content that is potentially causing harm, we actually don't know how consumed it is. We don't know how widespread it is and how many people are actually using it. Isn't one of the remedies for this some kind of regulation that requires if not government at least external researchers and academics having access to the algorithms and some requirements around transparency and reporting on on the kinds of content that are causing harm that are are sort of gaining traction isn't isn't that a place to
3: start yeah so i've sort of worked there and about some technology for long enough to know when something hits buzzword status Um, you know where it's sort of this frothy thing that's just sort of dropped into conversations, but there's not actually any, well, the the, the person dropping that word into a, a sentence, you can tell they don't actually have any sense of what that means. And, mm. like, transparency has reached that point where, like, every conversation we have about the platform, people say, oh, transparency, we need transparency. So regularly I've asked witnesses in this inquiry, well, what do you mean by transparency? And people sort of say, oh, look, I don't know, but, you know, we need it. <laughs> I, I thought one of the most uh, impressive witnesses we had before the inquiry was was Brad Silverman, who is the former CEO of CrowdTangle, you know, someone who has actually um, put in this sort of call for transparency into action by establishing a company um, that produced real-time data around well, what is the widely shared content on, on Facebook. So if you've seen those little lists of... Uh, you know, who's the politician with the most engagement on Facebook over the last 24 hours? Like, that's coming from from his work. And I sort of put it to him. as like, well, you know, we're talking to, we talk about transparency a lot. What do we actually need to drive for in a regulatory sense here? He conceptualised it, and this is something that's been picked up in um, legislation that has a whole range of co-sponsors in the US. Amy Klobuchar, a, a number of senators are behind this. He's conceptualised this as a funnel, right? So. You can think about the narrow part of the funnel, we have the most narrow access to the most sensitive data um, on a highly governed uh, mechanism for academic researchers, for, you know, people that really want to go in and look at the the most sensitive data. You know, you take a step up, you want to have some kind of safe harbour for public interest researchers who have effectively scraped data um, from these platforms um, again, testing. What is there out there? What's being shared widely? What's what's going um, uh, going viral, to use the colloquialism? And at the moment, that kind of research is is hindered by the fact that Facebook will sue you <laughs> if you are doing that for some reasonable reasons. I mean, that's a, a response to the Cambridge Analytical scandal, but their response goes significantly beyond any sort of protections you'd have from Cambridge Analytica. You want some kind of algorithmic transparency where you can let um, you know. Uh, technically-minded researchers go in and, you know, look under the hood and see how those amplification and and increasingly friction engines as well uh, are operating. Um, And then finally, I think you kind of want mandated something like CrowdTangle, you know, something like a live list of content that, and it's not just there won't be one live list. I think you probably will need a series of live lists for different demographic cohorts, right? So, you know, if people in, you know, regional Australia their Facebook looks different to the Facebook that I'm getting in multicultural Footscray. Um, that's probably something that we need to know about, and you know we won't be able to pick up on the, the disinformation, misinformation that's hitting different communities unless we have that kind of diversity. Um, but but I thought that that Brad's evidence was Brad's evidence was good because it tried to engage that complexity. You know, really took it down to a granular level and said, look, here are the different kinds of things that we'd be looking for beyond simple reporting transparency, because there's a whole range of shortcomings with reporting transparency. He's talking about getting under the hood with with data feeds and segmenting it out with a bit of consciousness about both the benefits we get from different forms of transparency and the kind of safeguards you'd need to build into that.
2: This is a hugely complex issue, right? It's, it's, and a complex issue to solve. And so, yes, I, I take your point. Calling for transparency is a, is a is a nice shorthand, but what do you actually mean by that? I, I just would have thought a, a place to start, which is, I think, along the lines of some of the things that you put forward then would be, if we had some visibility over the con- the top content that is consumed on Facebook, for example, or YouTube or any of these platforms, some visibility over that, uh, that then third parties, be they academics or whoever, could then go and research in more detail, that would at least provide a basis for us to be able to determine the scope of the harm. And at the moment, there's just no obligation on them doing that. And when they reach audiences of 20 million Australians, that's when you start to think, well, that surely that needs to be a responsibility that comes with, a, with an audience that large. I, I would have thought it a place to start. I
3: mean, and let's be frank, like this kind of transparency is what has driven calls for action in, in a regulatory mm. space. Like those CrowdTangle reports, people see them and say, like, I know this is my experience. I see those reports and say, well, the world on Facebook doesn't look like the world that I'm moving. In. You know, it doesn't look like my community and the kind of conversations that I have in my community it doesn't even look like the kind of conversations that I have in the parliament as a member of parliament, it's Mm -hmm. this other kind of world. And that disconnect that, that, you know, uh, lack of representativeness is what has caused a lot of people to start asking these questions. That transparency is really important. I mean, I, I wrote to Facebook some time ago, I write to them regularly. I, the individuals who work at Facebook are good people. (laughs) They, they tolerate me. Um, I wrote to them sort of say, uh, about one of these transparency issues and got back this response that said, oh, well, you know, we do CrowdTangle. You know, we don't need regulated live lists. We don't need anything else. We do CrowdTangle. Now, you know, this week they've said they're not onboarding any more researchers onto CrowdTangle. Um, and, you know, Brad Silverman, his experience leaving Facebook, you know, was driven by a disconnect on values on transparency. So I think we need to keep pushing on this issue. Um. I
0: know we're coming up to the hour. I, I just wanted your take on the other strain that I had coming through the inquiry, which was the idea of a, a general duty of care on the platforms to do no harm. Effectively, it felt like by analogy, like workplace safety. So rather than trying to identify a particular harm and design a response from a regulator to basically say this is on new platforms, you create a safe space. What's your, what was your sense of that discussion?
3: Look, I think there are advantages, and there are issues to think about from taking that approach. So this this duty approach comes from uh, the recommendations of the the select committee that was looking into the UK equivalent of their online safety bill, and it's a recommendation that they made. And effectively, it would create a statutory obligation on these platforms to um, uh, consider reasonably foreseeable uh, harms that flowing from their products. Um, and there was sort of some specified defined harms that took it to not just harms to individuals but to broader societal harms. Look, I think there are benefits from that approach in that it kind of does hold the feet to the fire a little bit in the platform saying that you can't just dismiss this. You know, you need to engage in internal research and you need to think about the implications of your product and the way they work. There's, there's potential there, I think, but the, the big thing that comes out to me, though, is that, you know, that won't work unless you have a, a real embrace of a sort of a multi-stakeholder approach in these um, organisations because, you know, they are not all seen. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they reveal blind spots about the way their, their platforms are experienced um, by different cohorts all the time. Um, you know, Lizzie's talked about the experience with sex workers and that's a good one. Um, it's not just that though. <laughs> you know, it, it's basically anyone that doesn't look like them has to really bang on the door to be heard so there's potential in that duty so long as when they're foreseeing potential harms you know there are a lot of people in the room whispering in the air about what those harms could be and how it could affect different people.
1: Last quick one Lizzie? I think it is a nice way to articulate and I think you've done a good job at kind of being in a difficult position Tim because you don't get to choose the terms of these inquiries you don't necessarily even get much say in how they unfold but I think there is a real really it's an important moment i think if in the event that labor does win the next election that it starts to think about positively how it can contribute to this space um, and not i guess i, I don't want it to see it to see it become like the surveillance space where the default position is to defer to the conservatives because there's a fear that that it will be look it will appear that that labor is not acting and so i think this is the really the moment to start crafting some of those narratives how it can be implemented legislatively, but also have that conversation where we talk about harm in a broader sense, but also think about who might be caught up when we're creating what seem like very important initiatives to protect certain groups, who might also have to pay a price for that. Um, and it does require a bit of a sophisticated, nuanced conversation. And I would hope that that's what you guys are doing now in preparation for the eventual election. I suppose that's that's my pitch.
0: Not a bad one either. Um, Tim, thanks for joining us. What's the what's the um what, what happens next? You guys have to go and write a report. and
3: So, yeah, there will be a report coming in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, I'll, I'll sit down with the, the committee chair over the coming days and we'll see if we can get to, you know, a bipartisan approach and as much as possible. And the things we don't agree on, we'll have additional comments from Labor, sent, Labor members, um, you know, maybe even a dissenting report if things go completely astray. But like I said, there's a lot of common ground here. So well, she I'm, I'm
0: optimistic. She did discover safety by design during the hearing. So that was exciting.
3: Lisa's a dear friend of mine. I think she's a really good person. She's been great to work with on this committee. There have been a range of people wanting to participate in the committee that have... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here. we has got some interesting submissions to this inquiry. Put it that way.
2: <laughs> you should be a politician, Tim. I'll wait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, guys, thanks. That was a great discussion. Um, we'll be doing this fortnightly. The um, go up as a podcast over the weekend if you like it share it with your um your friends and enemies alike um dan lizzie thanks guys um we'll see you in a fortnight and um stay safe everybody cheers you've been listening to burning platforms a fortnightly podcast from the australia institute's center for responsible technology It was recorded live at a virtual town hall. And if you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real virtual life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. There you can also subscribe to Tech Check, our summary of the latest news and ideas. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.